Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the verses uh, 17 through 32. But this morning I wanted to start off but with a quote um, by one of the great minds, the great philosophers of our time, Forrest Gump, who said, and I quote, You can tell a lot about a person by their shoes, where they're going, and where they've been. Forrest Gump was a, 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 a good Southern man who had a nice draw to his voice, but he said something pretty profound when he said that. You can tell a lot about a person by their shoes, what's going on in their life, and where they're heading in life. If you think about it, it's kind of true, right? If, if you looked at somebody's shoes, maybe the type of shoes that they're wearing, if they're wearing steel-toed boots, you can guess they're probably headed to work. If they've got flip-flops on, likely they're maybe headed to the beach or to the pool. If they've got sneakers on, some kind of tennis shoes, maybe some sporting event, some kind of activity uh, that they're going to be participating in. That's where they're going. Or maybe if you looked at somebody and the condition of their shoes, if they were muddy and, and dirty, you would think you've had those for a while. Maybe it was raining outside. You stepped in a mud puddle. Um, or maybe if they're nice and clean and, and barely blemished, you think they just came from shoe sensation in Walmart or in Miami, um, and they're, they got nice clean shoes on. Whatever the case is, you can look at somebody's shoes and think you can tell something about them. And I think Paul kind of teaches us that same thing today. In, in, in this book, in this portion of Ephesians, Paul's going to talk about the way we walk, and the actions that we take in life are kind of like clothing. Um, the, the way that we walk and the things that we do are kind of like clothing that we wear. Um, a, a way that we can observe the uh, way somebody lives their life is like the clothing that they wear. And Paul is going to call us to take some clothing off and to put some other clothes on. Um, just like as if, if you'd walk through a, a muddy puddle and got splashed, you need to look at the clothes that are on you that are dirty Take those off and replace those with clean clothes. And that's what Paul calls us to do this morning. So with that being said, let's read Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 17 through the end of the chapter, down to verse 32. And it says this, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. This is Ephesians 4, starting verse 17. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity from the, from the practice of every kind of impurity and with the desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, in righteousness and purity, in the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin or sun go down on your anger and don't let uh, don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands 
so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only uh, what is good for building up someone in need so that, that so that so it gives grace to those who hear and don't grieve the God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So just as we walk through this passage, I'm going to break it down in three ways. We're going to look at the what, the why, and the how. Kind of those good reporter questions. The what, the why, and the how. So the what of this passage, really the, the main point that Paul says is this. Don't walk as Gentiles. That's his main command in this. Do not walk as Gentiles. Now Paul uses that term Gentile here um, in the context of this book. In the context of this book. For Paul, a Gentile is not just a non-Jew, someone who's not Jewish. It's not just an ethic, uh, ethnic term for Paul. It is in reference to someone who is far from, not familiar with, and rebellious against the one true God. That's what Paul means when he says Gentile. He's not just referring to their ethnicity, being a non-Jew. He's referring to someone who does not know God, isn't familiar with God, doesn't have a relationship with them, and is in rebellion against that God. When these Ephesians came to know Jesus, Paul expected them to stop doing some of the things they used to do. And he expected them to be different. And he reflects on the, on the condition of what it was like to be a non-Christian. He examines their, their minds, their thoughts. He says, uh, Christians and non-Christians, they should be differently. Or they should be different. Christians should, number one, think differently. In verse 17 and 18, it talks about how um, the, the Gentiles have a futility of mind and are darkened in understanding. Futility in this passage uh, just means meaningless, purposelessness. Uh, vain or vanity is another word for it. We humans, particularly those who are not in Christ, have the capacity to waste time and resources and efforts and thoughts on things that will not last. For some reason, uh, things that will not last into, into eternity can take, uh, can take control of our minds. And we focus all of our effort, attention, we sacrifice things, uh, important things, for meaningless things. And that's what he means when he says a futility of mind, an uh, endless purposelessness. He also says darkened in understanding, which means that uh, non-Christians, their thoughts are not informed uh, by the most important thing in life, which is God's word. They don't have the light of God's word to light up their path in life. And we all know the dangers of walking through our kids' room at night. There are Legos and other sharp objects just waiting, lying in wait to pierce that tender arch of your foot. If you don't have a light on, you're not going to be able to choose the right path through your kid's room. And in the same way, someone who's not in relationship with God does not have a light in their life to guide them through the dangers of life. So Christians should think differently. They should have a different guide to their life. Also, Christians should feel differently, feel differently. In verses 18 and 19, it talks about how the non-Christian, the Gentile, their hearts are hardened and are callous toward the Lord. Hardened and callous toward the Lord. In some sense, he's comparing being a sinner to like being an addict. We know that someone who's an addict, uh, what worked for them before does not work this time, so they need more. 
uh, more to, to feel the way they want to feel this time. In the same way, sin does the same thing to us. A little sin today turns into a lot of sin tomorrow. And the sin that satisfied us yesterday, we need to double it to get our fix tomorrow. That's what sin does to the human heart. It calluses us to where we don't feel anymore. Um, I've used this example a lot, but I always want to bring it, bring it back. Um, when I play guitar, um, there's times in my life where I've played it a lot, and there's times when I have not played it much. And those times when I don't play it much, all it takes is about half a song before my fingers turn to fire. It feels like the strings are glass. Um, but if I play a lot like I do right now, I can go through a whole set, not feel anything, because my fingers are calloused to that, to those strings. And in the same way, our hearts, a non-Christian's hearts, a heart is callous toward the sin in their life. They do it and don't feel it. Uh, they need more the next time. And it also speaks of them being greedy to sin, desiring to sin more and more, needing more and more of it. Paul's saying that we must no longer live like this. We can't live as Gentiles any longer. If we've been saved by Christ, we can no longer live like this. And so we can, I think, apply this to both the Christians and the non-Christians in the room. So to the Christians, I want to remind you, this description was you at one time. Or at least it should be. This description should be a description of your past life. But as Christians, sometimes we let that past life creep back up into our current life. And we can be tempted to, to have a, a mind that focuses on the pointless and meaningless things in life. We can live our lives as if we do not have the light of God's word in our life to guide us. And we make decisions that are not informed by God's word, but are informed by the deceitful desires in our heart that linger still. So Christian, let this description of you be in the past. Because at one time, all of us were this. Uh, that there's Paul, Paul's an equal opportunity offender. He, he says this about everybody. All people who are not in Christ. But let this be, let this description be in your past, not in your present. And to non-Christians, these words are not meant to be an insult upon your intelligence to say that you have a futile mind and a darkened uh, understanding. It's an invitation by the God who created you to enter into relationship with him, to enter into his marvelous light of this God who calls you to live a life in relation to him. So we've seen the what of this passage, which is no longer live as Gentiles. But Paul goes on to make an argument as to why we should no longer live as Gentiles. In verses 21 through 24, he says to take off the old self and to put on the new self because we are being remade. So the what is to no longer live as Gentiles. The why is you are being remade. You are being remade into the image and likeness of God, into the image and likeness of Christ. When we become Christians, we're not just forgiven of our sins, but we are given an entirely new way of life. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, write this down. Jesus doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. I want to say that one more time. Jesus doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. He saves us from our sin, the wrath of of God due to our sin. He saves us from that, but he also saves us to godliness and righteousness and sanctification. 
If you want to write these big words down next to those. So when you put your faith in Jesus, you are justified. Uh, one way that somebody has said to remember that is it, it's just if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified or forgiven. God looks at you as if you have a completely clean slate and you've never done anything wrong because he looks at you through the lens of the blood of his son, Jesus. So when you become a Christian, you are justified. You are made right with God. And he looks at you as if you're perfectly spotless and righteous. That's what it means to be justified. But salvation doesn't just stop there. We're not just justified. We're also second sanctified, set apart, made right. Or, or So in, in justification, we're declared to be right. And in sanctification, it's God's process of making us into what he's called us. Sanctification. We're justified and we're sanctified. We're saved from our sins, but we're saved to a life of godliness. The argument is this. You've been saved by Jesus and your life should be different because God is in the process of making you look like him. Making you look righteous in line with God, who he is. Making you holy. I asked a, um, an Indian guy one time. When I say Indian, I mean like somebody from, from India, the continent of India, the country of India. I asked him, what, what is it that American Christians could learn from Indian Christians? Um, a different perspective in life, a different view of, of who God is, um, a different perspective. What, what can we learn from you all? And he said this, Americans don't appreciate holiness. Americans don't appreciate holiness in our lives. Uh, they're much, American Christians are very willing to mix their, intermingle their lives with impurity um, and, and tolerate sinfulness within their life. They don't appreciate personal holiness. And as an American, I was offended at first, um, as we might be. But then I got to thinking about it and I thought, man, that, that is probably true. We don't desire holiness. Let me ask you this. Uh, when you think of, I say, if I say, let's have fun on Friday night, if, if you use that term in the world, that's usually not describing a nice, peaceful, calm, clean night, right? That's usually involving some kind of nefarious activity, right? Um, that's what we think of when we say have a, have a fun night on Friday. But when we're Christians... Holiness should be appealing to us. Is holiness appealing to you? Is that something that is appealing and appetizing to you to be holy? I hope it is. I hope it is for our sake. So he said that, that holiness is something we can learn. I think that is, that is very true. We as Christians need to learn to appreciate and crave and desire holiness in our life because holiness and righteousness means living like God, being remade into that, that life. Now, as we think of this passage... Um, we're about to, um, the end of this passage is really good, hard, solid, applicational um, content for us. But as we think about it, this call to put off the old and put on the new, we need to look at it in context of this book. We look at it in context of this book. If you think of a, a horse and a rider, um, if you see a cowboy and he falls off the horse on one side, wouldn't it be silly for him to get on the horse and fall off on the other side? Um, to kind of overcorrect the balance that he had on the horse. And if we're not careful, we can overcorrect as we read this passage. Um, or we can overcorrect one way or the other. So if you think of that horse, one rider might fall off the horse this way. And as Protestants, we tend to fall off this way as well. This book of the Bible makes a big deal about grace. What is grace? 
It's that we get something that we didn't earn, that we shouldn't have, that we don't deserve. God gives us favor even though we've done nothing to earn it. Remember that great verse, um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. As Protestants, um, those who are protesting against the Catholic Church, remember, uh, that's the big thing, grace. Uh, We don't have to work. We don't have to jump through all of these hoops to be saved. We simply trust in Christ through faith and we're saved by grace. That's a really good thing. But if we lean too much on that, we fall off the horse to say what we do after we're saved means nothing. We make such a small uh, thing of works that works don't matter to us anymore. Sure, we're not saved by works, but certainly works are important. Certainly the way we live should be important in our lives. So let us not appreciate grace so much that we forget that works are important. You just have to have them in the right direction or the right order. right? If you, if you have a truck and you're going to pull a trailer, you've got to make sure that trailer is behind you and it's hooked to the hitch of your truck. right? You wouldn't put the trailer in front of your truck. If you do, that's going to mess things up. In the same way, if you try to put works at the front end and make that how you get saved and put grace behind it, it's not going to work. No, we're saved first, then we do works. But we also can fall off the horse the other way. We run the risk of doing that. Uh, We can take this verse and instead of saying, um, you were just saved by grace and not by works, uh, we can fall off the other way and think that what we do saves us. Uh, the, the, the way that we live saves us. And as we follow out and try to take off the old and put on the new, we can be tempted to think that that is what makes us favorable before God. Favorable before God. That's what makes God appreciate us and love us is that if we live the way that he's going to describe here in this passage in the next few moments. So we can't fall off the horse on either way. We shouldn't fall off saying uh, we're, we, works don't matter. But we also shouldn't fall off the other way to say works are the only thing that matters. We have to be balanced and say we're saved by grace and now we work and live our lives. But let's not forget to to emphasize this part of working. And that's what Paul emphasizes in this last portion. So he said, what do we do? Don't live as Gentiles anymore. Why? Because you're being remade into the image of God. Now, how does that look in our daily lives? What does it look like for you, Christian, to take off the old and to put on the new? What does it look like for you to take off the old and put on the new? Here's the opportunity for you to look at your life and make a comparison. And, and, and Paul's going to go through and describe ways in which you can take off the old and put on the new. Take off the old and put on the new. The first that he describes is in verse 25, he talks about lying and truthfulness. He says, take off lying and put on truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's important for us as Christians to emphasize truth and to not lie. Pretty simple, pretty standard, sometimes difficult. We're tempted to lie even still. So take off lying And put on truth is what verse 25 says. Verse 26 says this. Be angry and do not sin. Now it's kind of getting a little more real for us in here. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, 
you shouldn't be lying, but you should seek to tell the truth. He also says, second, you shouldn't be angry and sin while you're angry. He says, trade in your anger for control. Now, to be clear, being angry, it's, it's a kind of a tough, fine line. Being angry is not necessarily a sin in and of itself because Jesus was angry. And when he drove the, the, the money changers out of the temple, he was angry. He flipped tables. Um, I don't think we quite have the right to go in and say, like, we get to flip the tables, right? But Jesus, when he was angry, he did it in such a way that he did not sin. Now, we're called to do the same thing. There are things in our life that may, be make, that may make us angry. But we should do that, be angry, in such a way that doesn't cause us to sin. That does not cause us to sin. To be in control of the way we're angry. So, one way that looks is to not let the sun go down on your anger. Not let the sun go down on your anger. Some people say that means uh, always make up before bed. Like, don't, don't, don't go to sleep on your anger. I think that's probably true. But really what it means is don't let anger fester. Don't let anger just sit there. Um, if something's upset you, something's made you angry, don't let it sit. Don't let it fester. Just like a, an open wound, if you don't clean that thing, it's going to get infected. And if you don't take care of anger, that's an opportunity for the devil, is how this passage describes it. That's an opportunity for Satan to come in to that relationship. So if you're angry, you need to be angry like a Christian. Which means you handle your anger quickly and in such a way that you're controlled. Not recklessly. Not letting it linger for a long, long time. So he says, trade lying for truth. Uh, trade anger for control. It says trade stealing for generosity. Trade stealing for generosity. We see that in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he should do honest work. With his own hands so that he has something to share. So not only does the thief stop stealing, he also makes the intention to live his life in such a way that he can contribute, that he can be generous. To give up uh, taking things that were not given to him by God and to say, I want to live a life in such a way that I can earn to bless other people. The life change, go from stealing to being generous. Another one that hits me uh, hard at home is this. Verse 29, to turn corrupt speech to edifying speech, to speech that builds up. Verse 29 says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it gives grace to those who hear it. What does James say, the book of James say about our tongues, about the things we say? It says that a small spark can catch a whole forest on fire. All it takes is a dude driving down the road and flick his cigarette out the window to catch uh, the biggest forest on fire. He compares that to our tongue or the things we say. The things we say can destroy lives. And Paul says in this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Let no corrupting talk. Some of us might say, well, I don't use any of those three letter, four letter words, so I'm good to go. Uh, I don't cuss. Um, so I'm good to go. But I think this goes far beyond cursing or cussing. Uh, I don't think he's just even talking about cussing. I think in his mind, he has things uh, that tear people down. Things like gossip, lying, as we mentioned earlier, slander, rudeness, careless speech, improperly timed words, 
words that are not meant to build up. Now, are those the kind of words that leave your mouth ever? If so, we have to make the conscious decision to say, I'm not going to let words that tear people down come out, but I'm going to let words that build people up come out of my mouth. And as it mentions here, we have to speak the truth and say it at the right time. It says, uh, the ESV renders it, uh, as fits the occasion. you've, You've probably been in that situation where you've said the right thing, but at the wrong time, which it ends up not being well received, right? So as you think about your words, speak them, say them as a Christian would. Not language that would build, uh, tear somebody down or gossip about them or slander them, but words that would build somebody up, that would put another brick on their building of becoming more like Jesus. With every word, you can either take a brick down or put a brick on as far as helping people become more like Jesus. And so as Christians, we put away the corrupting talk and put on edifying talk. And then finally, let uh, trade bitterness for reconciliation. Verse 31 and 32 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. When we're hurt, when something's happened to us, when someone has said something to us, we can be bitter. We can... Again, let those things linger on us. Maybe we're not actively angry at them. Maybe we're not treating them poorly, but we can let that bitterness uh, set inside of us. And that does end up resulting in wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Let all of those things be put away from you. And instead of being bitter with the people in your life that have hurt you, you should seek to be reconciled to them. To be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. And that really is the summation of all this. We are to live our lives and treat the people around us the way Christ has treated us. When we were his enemies, when I say enemy, I'm not just saying you were lost and far away from him. It's not just that you um, had lost your direction. You were an enemy with him. You took up arms against him. But instead of going to war against you, he went to war against your sin in order that he might forgive you. And in the same way, if there are people in our lives, bitterness that we're harboring, um, unforgiveness that sits in our hearts, Christians don't do that. Christians don't let bitterness and anger and unforgiveness sit in their hearts, but they seek out a way to reconcile. They seek it out. Being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So those are just a few examples that Paul gives of how our lives should look different as Christians. You trade in lying for truth, anger for control, stealing for generosity, corrupt speech for edifying speech, bitterness for reconciliation. Now in your life, you might have another set of uh, exchange, uh, another exchange you need to do. And that's where it comes in, where, where prayer comes into this. We pray and ask God, God, give me the ability, the humility and the ability to look at my life and see where I'm falling short and how I might change. And as you do that, let me remind you uh, that one You are not doing that to earn God's favor. You're not doing that to be saved. Because when you put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, that saves you. 
So you're not doing this to be saved. You're not taking off the old and putting on the new to be saved. Uh, You're doing it because you want to become more like God. And when you do that, you live that happy, fulfilling, satisfied, forgiven life. And as you do that, remember, you're not doing it to be saved and do it in light of God's word. It's the mirror in which you should look to see yourself and the way you should look. Look into the, the, the mirror of God's word and let that inform you of your opinion of yourself. Sure, God can do that through other people as well. Um, if, you're, if you're really brave, ask your wife in, in what ways you're failing and falling short of being like Jesus. I'm sure she has a few things. I know Whitney might have a few for me. Um, but if you're really brave, do that. Ask somebody else to look into your life as well to help you. So all of these qualities um, that have been listed here, Paul's really kind of comparing to clothing. Um, things that you put on and take off. Take off the old, put on the new. We take off the bad clothes and put on the good clothes. And we know that sometimes in our life, we, uh, sometimes we wear the wrong clothing. I'm really thankful that God is sovereign. Um, last week, we got on the plane to head to New York City, which is in the Northeast, um, typically in November, freezing cold. Thankfully, it was colder here than it was there because I forgot my jacket. I got in the, I got in the car, took off to Kansas City. I did not have my jacket. So the clothes I was wearing, I was not prepared for the weather in which I, to which I thought I was going. I thought I was going to be completely unprepared uh, for the weather I was going to be in. We've all done that. We've left a home without a jacket. Uh, maybe your shoes, you've worn them so long that they have holes in them. And when you step on a little bit of wet grass, you, you find out that you've got a hole in your shoe. Sometimes we wear clothing that is not fit for the occasion. It's not fit for the occasion. And I would argue that as as we look at these qualities that Paul has described here, to walk through your life as a non-Christian, that's going to be like walking through sub-zero temperatures without a jacket. You're just living a life uh, that you're not prepared for, and because of it, the elements are going to to tear you down and take you down. To live a life uh, of lying and corrupt speech and bitterness, that's going to tear you down because you're not wearing the right clothing in life. The clothing that you need to wear is that Christ-like clothing. Telling the truth. Building people up. Forgiving those who have hurt you. That's the kind of clothing that allows you to live a happy, satisfied, fulfilling, forgiven life. So here's your opportunity to examine your life and ask the question, what needs to change? Non-Christian... Do you need to take off the shackles of sin and clothe yourself with the forgiveness of Christ? Today's your opportunity to do that. Christian, do you need to humbly make the choice to change your life to match Jesus? Today's your opportunity. Either way, examine your life and examine the way you walk. Examine your clothes and see which ones you need to take off and which ones you need to put on. Because just as Forrest said, you can tell a lot about a person by their shoes. So what about you needs to change this morning? Let me pray for us.